Super Talk Mississippi media production. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host, Gerard Gibbert. On the road again, as the great Willie Nelson would say, we're down at two museums today. Temporarily relocated the quite mobile Element Well Studios. We are here because tomorrow is Veterans Day. If you haven't had a chance to tour these uh, fantastic facilities, the two museums here in downtown Jackson, you need to do it. You will not be disappointed. It is uh, so professionally and tastefully done, and it is certainly worth a bit of your time to experience and and experience and be exposed to the history of the great state of Mississippi, uh, for sure, and the struggle for civil rights as well. Rhino, what's going on down there? Oh, not too terribly much. Well, it's uh, once again, from a weather perspective, a beautiful day out there, but it's going to get cold this weekend, it appears. A little front moving through, going to chill things up. Winter is returning to the great state of Mississippi, and I reckon it's about time, isn't it? Yeah, it's a little weird because we've got the temperatures dropping in the Magnolia State, and then if you look just a couple states to the east and a little bit to the south, they're watching a tropical storm. That is nuts. Uh, tropical storm, of course, it... it uh, Came on shore, did it not, Nicole, as a Category 1 hurricane on the eastern shore of Florida and is now making a north-northeasterly turn up the eastern seaboard. Torrential rains, I believe, expected in the New England area throughout the weekend. And can we just get this hurricane season behind us? It's time to wish it uh, good riddance and move forward to the catastrophic hurricane of course ian what did joe biden call it ivan then ian uh, that impacted the fort myers western shore and uh, coast of florida just a few weeks ago they're still reeling from that of course massive damage in that respect so but beautiful day here in central mississippi if you're in the area come on down to two museums i see national guard on hand the national guard band we've got a great lineup for you at 1020 lucian smith former chairman of the mississippi gop is going to join me here at two museums we're going to break down all the election results from Tuesday, still many races are outstanding. Rachel Myers, Deputy Director of Two Museums, joins us at 10.50. Donnie Dukes, current Vice President of the Mississippi Affairs Veterans Affairs Board and incoming president. 
He's also the chief warrant officer for Mississippi. Uh, joins me on the set here at 1137. Pamela Jr., director of two museums on at 1150 and 1250. And at 1205, our good friend, the adjutant general of the Mississippi National Guard, Jansen Boyles. General Jansen Boyles comes on to talk about the significance of, of Veterans Day and also give us an update on the activities of the Mississippi National Guard. So with respect to the election results, it looks like on the House side, best I can tell, Rhino, just looking at two or three different sources, you may see something different. Looks like 208 in and called for Republicans, 190 over uh, on in the House side, over for the, uh, for the Democrats, so a total of 398. That means that there are 37 seats outstanding. Presently, Republicans have an 18-seat advantage. Not sure that holds. I still think we're going to come in in the 12 to 15-seat advantage for the Republicans. Obviously, far short of the pro, uh, predicted uh, red wave, and uh, I think there's a lot of disappointment in the air about that. Over on the Senate side, 49 call for the Republicans, 48 for the Democrats. Outstanding are the states of Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. Now, based on present trends, and let's talk about Arizona and Nevada, if uh, things hold as they are now, Arizona would go for Mark Kelly, the Democrat, Nevada for Adam Laxalt, the Republican, Georgia, the Secretary of State, just as we were going off the air yesterday, declared and announced that the Georgia Senate race goes to a runoff, no surprise there, and that will occur on December the 6th. God bless the people of the great state of Georgia. They're going to get absolutely inundated with uh, just a a barrage of advertising uh, across all the media platforms. I would not be surprised to see more than $100 million pumped into that race uh, over the next month. Uh, Slightly less than a month, actually. But you know it's going to just be uh, ginormous in terms of spending. It's just incredible how much money is being spent on these races. So Raphael Warnock, the incumbent Democrat, and Herschel Walker, the challenging Republican, go to a runoff on December 6th. Right now, based on the current trends, if they hold, just as we discussed, that means once again that the outcome in the state of Georgia will determine control of the U.S. Senate. Who would ever thunk that all eyes would be focused on the Peach State, which is now emerged as the pivotal state in uh, control of the Senate? Certainly the last two election cycles, it's a repeat of 20 if you will. This will be a fascinating situation to, to watch, and we'll be doing it. Ben from Madison on the ceasefire text line. Gerard, would you be surprised if Speaker Gunn gives a run for governor in 23? I know you must be hearing something. That, of course, is uh, related to the Speaker's announcement yesterday that he will not seek re-election for his present House seat. He will not seek re-election. That actually does not come as a surprise uh, I, I think that he's 
kind of shared in private circles that he was certainly thinking about not running without tipping his hand on what he may seek, if anything. I, actually, Ben, I would be surprised if he runs for governor. I don't see it. I really don't. I, I think he's going to go to the sidelines, and I think he's going to wait for what uh, perhaps an open seat. Not sure what that might be, when that might occur. Something that I think he feels comfortable pursuing. He's a good man. He's a good friend. We are grateful for his service. He, I think, led the House of Representatives with uh, professionalism and competence, and he, he achieved a lot in leading that caucus, which, remember, folks, one too long ago was totally under Democrat control. There have been a lot of legislative wins under his, uh, his leadership and uh, the governor and his statement about uh, uh, Speaker Gunn retiring. He made the point, of course, that which is not surprising, that they didn't always agree uh, tactically as it relates to legislation, but they, uh, they celebrated victories together and they worked together to achieve a lot uh, for the state of Mississippi. And I think it was uh, tastefully done uh, by the governor in the way he handled the retirement uh, from the House of Representatives. And, of course, then the question is, who steps up and runs for that seat? i got to tell you, folks, walking in here this morning, I received a call from someone who is not yet public. And I will honor uh, this individual's wishes in not announcing, but... Uh, someone called me this morning as I was walking up the steps here to museums just to let me know uh, their intention to seek uh, elections, seek the office that uh, Speaker Gunn is vacating. A, a, uh, a resident of the area of the county of Madison, which is part of the Speaker's district, which also, of course, includes western, mostly western Hines County, the Clinton area. This particular person, a longtime Clinton resident, now lives in this area of Madison County, which is part of that district. So it's going to be interesting. Uh, ben from Madison says, interesting. I appreciate the honest air, uh, answer. Sure. Now, I could certainly be wrong and surprised, Ben, so please understand I'm just offering my opinion here, and this is an opinion show. Uh, let's see, Thomas and Greenwood says, but Tate is going to be hard to beat in 23. What about Michael Watson? There's a lot of buzz about Secretary of State Michael Watson possibly running for uh, governor. I'm not sure if that's going to happen or not. haven't heard anything definitive on that. I do uh, chat with the Secretary of State fairly regularly. I just don't know. I have nothing to offer in that respect. Uh Larry and Jackson, sir, your comment's totally inappropriate. I'm not even going to read it, but I just want you to know that. I, I'm not sure what you're looking for, honestly. I, I stay confused about that. You, you t tend to use that term as a pejorative. I'm not going to repeat it here. You've also used it to describe me as well. You're stuck on it. Anyhow, we're going to take a break right here. The Element Well Studios down at two museums today. When we come back, Lucian Smith, former chairman of the Mississippi GOP. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's go.
Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We are coming at you live from two museums in downtown Jackson. Veterans Day celebration underway here. We're going to have, uh, of course, uh, Dur Boyles. I call him Dur. He's a longtime friend. But uh, he's officially, he is, of course, the Adjutant General of the Mississippi National Guard, Jansen Boyles, uh, General Jansen Boyles. We're waiting for Lucian Smith to show up. I see him coming up the uh, walkway here, the sidewalk. He's going to be sitting down in a second. Uh, and, and by the way, I got a text from a friend we were just talking about, Speaker of the House, Philip Gunn, stepping down. And I did mention that someone did phone me this morning about uh, about running. I, I need to clarify, and there was some confusion there, running for the Speaker's House seat. Not for Speaker. I don't have any information on that. I, I do expect the Speaker Pro Tim, uh, Jason White, will uh, be our person there that will take over the member of the House that is likely to assume the role and be elected uh, as the Speaker of the House. So, anyhow, just to clarify, that individual, that call I was talking about, referencing an individual uh, discussing plans to run, is is talking about running for the House seat, the House seat that Speaker of the House gun uh, presently holds. So just want to be clear. And joining us now in the Element Well Studios down at two museums, our good friend Lucian Smith, former chairman of the Mississippi uh, GOP. Morning, Lucian. Good to see you, sir. Good to see you, Gerard. All right. So it has been a most eventful week in the political world. It, it has been. It has been. When, when, when I was booked, uh, it was before the election, and so I was expecting to come on and beat my chair and talk about how great Republicans were and how we dominated on Tuesday. And this is a very different conversation than I expected. Yeah, you know, one of my favorite uh, programs that I watch on on a regular basis, religiously, is Larry Kudlow on the Business Channel. Mm -hmm. And Larry, for the last few months, has been uh, talking about uh, economic policy that he'd like to see enacted to, to cure our economic woes. And he, he typically has been saying, uh, just hang in there, folks. The cavalry is coming, referring to the midterm elections to get us out of this uh, economic malaise that we're in. So yesterday he said, well, it's a platoon. <laughs> the platoon is that, coming. That's right. And we, I mean, look, we, we are going to be better off than we would have been because I think we'll get to around 222 in the House. So we will have a Republican speaker, and that's, that's going to be better than having Nancy Pelosi. But 222. I mean, that's a four-vote margin. So right. he, he, the speaker won't be able to lose. I mean, he'll have to be very careful to make sure he either picks up some Democrats or uh, keeps 100% of his caucus, which sometimes can be difficult to do. And so uh, I don't expect you're going to see a lot uh, done uh, over the course of the next two years. Uh, but uh, hopefully we will be able to block a lot of the bad ideas that have been coming out with the Democrats having total control the last couple of years. Well, I think that's exactly right. If nothing else, uh, just serving as a firewall for the, the remaining uh, items on uh, the agenda, uh, the Biden agenda. Now, yesterday, as you probably know, he was asked, do you intend to pivot in any way? And he said, no, uh, we're going to stay the course. So he, he is dug in on the Biden agenda. 
And he says that the people want his economic agenda. They want higher taxes on on big corporations and, and the rich. They uh, he wants the student loan forgiveness. They, they want all these other uh, subsidies and, and redistribution programs, if you will, the child tax credit, etc. They want all this, and so he's he's fully on board with continuing that. I don't think he can get that through the House of Representatives. How, how different do you think it is, uh, Lucian, when you're governing, let's say, uh, Representative McCarthy uh, arises as the Speaker of the House? How, how different is it governing when you've got a 5- to 10-seat majority versus a 30- to 40-seat majority? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you can get the bigger your majority, the more you're going to be able to get done as leadership because nobody agrees on everything 100% of the time. Right. You're always going to have somebody who says, well, I'm not for this, I can't be for that, um, because they view the problem a different way. Even people who happen to all, both be conservatives may look at a problem and uh, come to different conclusions about it. And so every the smaller your majority gets, the less you're going to be able to do because one or two people saying, I can't vote for this, suddenly you no longer have the votes to pass. I mean, you, right. can, you can think back to what happened in our state uh, House of Representatives. You know, Philip Gunn was elected in 2011 or 2012, technically a Speaker of the House, and, and had a razor-thin majority. And it wasn't until uh, a, a cycle later where he got a big uh, majority that he was able to get a lot done. And then after the 19 cycle where you had um, super majorities, uh, he was able to really get tons done. And I think the same thing's true here. It's going to be a narrowly divided house, uh, but they're going to. Ha- McCarthy, if he's speaker, is going to have to come up with real solutions because that's one of my theories on why we didn't do better. Um, because you look at the polling data, Biden's over fifty percent of uh, Americans who showed up to vote have an unfavorable opinion of Biden. Yep. A third of them said their top issue uh, was inflation. Fifty-two uh, percent of them said that the party that was best equipped to deal with inflation was the Republican Party. So it should have turned into bigger numbers, but I think the problem we had this cycle, in the House in particular, uh, was that we didn't have great messaging on exactly what we were going to do. The message essentially was, we're not the Democrats, vote for us. And so I think what we have to do over the course of the next two years is have real substantive proposals that address the problems that are happening in this country come out of the House uh, and hopefully come out of the Senate uh, and force Biden to veto them. But at the very least, the House has to show they're not just there to talk. They're there to do in meaningful ways. And so that, that I think, is the challenge for whoever the speaker is. It's an excellent point, Lucian. Henry Barber said the exact same thing yesterday. Well, Henry exact was right, thing. as he often is. Uh, he is. He, he's excellent at reading the tea leaves and, and analyzing uh, the election and the political realm and process. And I agree as well. It, it seems like both parties are entrenched, entrenched in just this constant messaging of, we ain't them. They're worse than we are, and this is all the bad stuff that's going to happen to you. This whole narrative of democracy is on the ballot. Like, what exactly does that mean? Right. But but I want to share this theory with you and get you to react. I actually think that that was very effective, and here's what I mean by that. I think there are so many people out there that have this tendency, and I'm talking about both parties, both sides, to trust somebody high up in leadership, in this case, President Biden, regardless of what we may think about him and, and his uh, his mental acuity and so forth. I think there are a lot of people say, well, Joe Biden says things are going to be really bad if we vote for those Republicans. I'm not going to do that. I think it was effective. Yeah, I, I thought that was more 
more, and I was wrong, but I thought that was more messaging to their base. I thought that that was being used mostly to get their base to get out and vote, to, to provide money, to volunteer. But I think you're right. I think that did resonate with people. And and, and I've been critical. You, you and I have had these conversations before. I've been critical of some of the rhetoric that has come from our side. But this whole democracy is on the line thing is literally dangerous. What does that mean? Well, I mean, what does it mean? A, but there are people, some people will write it off. They'll say, well, this is just yeah. rhetoric. It's what yeah. politicians say. But some people will take that seriously. I mean, imagine if Republicans had overwhelming majorities in both chambers and the President of the United States has said democracy was on the line in this election. I mean, if if our democracy literally just ended, that's a call. I'm not saying he did this, but it, that is a, effectively a call to political violence. Um, and it's why, and we, you know, we've talked about this, we've got to tone down the rhetoric on both sides. But, but I think you're right. I think people heard that and said, well, gosh, the President said democracy's on the line. I might as well show up and, and vote for the folks who apparently are the, the pro-democracy team. Well, to your point about the political violence, I literally heard this morning on uh, one of the left-leaning media sources, of course, there's a wide range of those, or no shortage, I heard one of the analysts, one of, one of the strategists say the reason that Republicans didn't fare as well as thought is because people, quote, are sick of political violence. I mean, literally, literally said that, and, they, and so I think you're right that that message somehow, at least in the in the view of this particular strategist, was effective. And let's be honest: if it weren't for seats that flipped in Florida and in New York, we don't have control of the House. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was the fact that it is not decided now is is embarrassing. I mean, and, and there are a lot there are other folks to blame. I mean, I don't think the RNC made great choices when they adopted those resolutions about uh, uh, about Representative Kissinger and. and Kinziger and Cheney. Kinziger, yeah. Um, You know, even, I mean, I think Liz Cheney has done a lot of negative things for the party by continuing to talk about the past and serving on the committee. But as a political party, the the question you've got to ask is, is what we're doing the most effective way to elect our people in the next election? And talking about the past is not a good way to win an election. People, especially in an environment like this where people are really hurting, folks want to know, how are you going to help me? And I totally they were, agree. That sort of messaging hurt us very badly, and I think that's also part of the reason that, that we lost. I totally agree. Uh, so something else I think it was also critical and should be taken note of by the party want to get you to react on this. You said it just a second ago. we got to talk about what we're going to do. I honestly believe, as we head to a break here, we'll come back and discuss it. I honestly believe that there are a lot of people that otherwise would have voted for Republicans, and I'm talking about that squishy independent middle base, which typically makes the difference in these swing districts in particular, that are saying, well, heck, I voted Republican last time. They didn't get it done. They're not honoring what they're pledging to do. So I'm just going to vote for the Democrats. I don't trust them either. We're coming right back with Lucian Smith. Stay with to get started today with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Midday, Super Talk Mississippi. We're at two museums today. 
for the Veterans Day ceremonies. I can see them out the window here in this beautiful facility, folks. If you haven't been down here, you owe it to yourself to tour these fantastic facilities. Uh, one, of course, separate, uh, celebrating Mississippi's uh, rich history and the other, the civil rights movement in the state of Mississippi. And it's, it's so well done. Uh, the Civil Rights Museum in particular, Lucian, is really neat in that it, it starts, I mean, just at the beginning of uh, human inhabitation, honestly, of the state of Mississippi, all the way through the civil rights movement to where we are today. And though we have some stain on the state of Mississippi, no doubt about that, we can't deny that, we also have to recognize and celebrate the many accomplishments and just how far we have progressed as a state. And, yeah. we, don't, and we don't get credit for that. And it's not like we want pat on the back. We just don't want you to keep describing us as the way we were 150 years ago, which they have a tendency to do. That's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah, this is a, this is a special place. And if you're... If you're in a position to come and go through it, you ought to, because it, it does speak to how far we've come, talk about, uh, in a very serious way, the, the problems of our past. Um, and it's just an incredibly high-quality really museum. I mean, this is it's like going into a Smithsonian, and, and it's a, it's a it's great awesome. thing that we've got uh, here in Mississippi. It's awesome. All right, so we were, we were talking about uh, these election outcomes uh, before the break there. I, I just uh, still thinking that... Even though exit polls uh, continue to show that uh, voters put economic matters in their personal household situation at the top of their list of concerns and issues, it didn't translate at the polls. I just had this theory that they don't really trust Republicans to address those issues because they didn't right. they didn't offer any concrete plan. Your thoughts? I think that's right. I think they didn't vote for us in large part. You know, we had candidate problems. There were some other problems in the Senate and the gubernatorial races. But the best explanation to me on the House in the House races is just that: is that they didn't trust us, and I think they didn't trust us in part because we didn't offer the sort of concrete, specific proposals that that were offered back in the contract with America in exactly. the '94 race. Exactly, and so. I think people have been burned, the other piece of it, I think people have been burned so often, conservatives, by electing Republicans who say they're going to do things. We were talking about this off the air. Yeah. You know, we, we ran a whole campaign a decade ago on how we were going to repeal and replace Obamacare. That never happened. Never happened. And, and so I think people have a unusually high uh, skepticism of congressional Republicans because they've just failed to deliver uh, on a lot of these major things that uh, that they've campaigned on. And so I, I, I think in with that history, coupled with our failure to really offer specific uh, proposals and and I think you know Kevin McCarthy has a fifty three percent unfavorable rating right, of voters. Right. I mean that it's it, it's not helpful to say we're going to replace Nancy Pelosi with someone you don't like, uh, and so I think that also played a role in it on the House side. I totally agree. And the dilemma it, it seems uh, as we've become a little more populist, I, I think, and, mm-hmm. and, and less or so focused on concrete, specific, definitive policy. The dilemma to me, Lucian, and, and this is something I've, I've thought about for, for years, really going back to the 2016 election cycle in particular, is that the voters want to hear certain things from you, such as, I'm going to repeal Obamacare. And if you don't say that, then you probably won't have a chance of, of prevailing. 
But if you do say it, the likelihood of you actually accomplishing it is like zil to none. I mean, because it, it's that's not the way the legislative process works. Fortunately, we don't want the president to be a dictator and, and uh, with the swipe of a pen just rip out this giant piece of legislation. And so that that it's it's Donald Trump. I talked to about this with you off the air there um, during the break. Donald Trump. Uh, give me eight years, I'm going to get rid of the debt. In four years, we're going to we're not we're going to not have a deficit. Well, okay, Which is well, impossible. Right, it's impossible. It's just mathematically impossible. Right, and and so, how do we get to a point where we start espousing? How, how do we get here and still get voter confidence? We espouse intentions. We we espouse um, a good policy, but it's also, I guess, with a caveat that you know we got to have the stars aligned. Well, I mean, I think we've got to be careful about making promises that we know are impossible. Uh, and I think in the context of, of Obamacare, you know, we said repeal and replace, but we right. never really said what we were going to replace it with. Right. And, you know, you'd get all these, they would ask congressional Republicans, well, what are you going to replace it with? And you'd get these kind of mealy mouth. well, there's going to be a better thing that keeps what you like and d- yep. gets rid of what you don't like, yep. and it's going to be better, we're going to call it something else. And um, so I think we've got to be more honest about what we're going to do. We've got to be more specific. And I also think we've got to do more talking about why we're going to do the things that we're going to do because you know things like student loan repayment which i think is a terrible idea it was bad policy right. probably uh illegal because it didn't go through the congress all we said was we're against it you know we didn't spend right. a lot of time talking about how you know we're going to make uh, america's working class effectively subsidize america's college graduates who are uh you know, who've gotten degrees that aren't as valuable as they should have been. I mean, there's no reason that Joe the plumber should effectively be paying uh, for my student debt. You right. know, if, I, if I took it on, that's my problem. But those are still popular items, and we've got to do a good bit more of talking about uh, about why we're for those things. And, in fact, uh, exit polls revealed that 18 to 29-year-olds in this country voted 64% for Democrats. I honestly believe there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because only Democrats were were uh, pledging, at least Joe Biden is the president with an executive order, to uh, forgive all the student debt, and that's the age group that has all the student debt. That's right. right. And the second thing is, and we just got to be honest about it, Lucian, there's an indoctrination to leftism occurring on our college campuses. There's no doubt about it. On our college campuses, some it looks like K sometimes in K through 12, uh, and then you've got a media apparatus that, you know, with relatively few exceptions, is effectively an arm of the Democratic Party. Now, I will say, we also made some bad decisions this cycle. We, we chose some bad candidates. I mean, Herschel Walker doesn't have any business being in the U.S. Senate. Agreed. Neither does Raphael Warnock. I hope Herschel Walker wins. But have, had we picked... Uh, one of the other candidates that were in that primary for Georgia, we probably would have won. Right. I think the same thing's true of, of Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. You know, not a ter- not as bad as Herschel Walker, but it's not even clear if he really lived in Pennsylvania. There right. were other people in there who would have been more competitive. And, and Dr. Oz was hurt by Doug Mastriano being the Republican nominee in Pennsylvania, who, who, who was a terrible candidate and only won the nomination because Donald Trump came in and endorsed him. But that had a negative effect everywhere else on the yeah. ballot, and it hurt Dr. Oz. And so, you know, we've got to pick 
better candidates moving forward. Um, and and the president, I mean, Donald Trump could have done a lot more to help these folks. He's sitting on a hundred million dollars in cash. You know what? What a difference does uh, twenty million or thirty million dollars in independent expenditures from President Trump do for Herschel Walker in Georgia? What does twenty or thirty million dollars do for Blake Masters uh, out in Arizona or Adam Assault? In Nevada, I mean, th- those are races where an investment from the president of all that money that he's he's accumulated uh, this cycle through fundraising could have made a difference. I mean, we, we might be sitting here talking about whether we would have a, a 53 or 54 vote uh, margin in the Senate, but we're not, and that's that is certainly a piece of it. Um, and and the the candidates that he helped get nominated, a lot of times they were loyal to him, and I certainly appreciate the interest in having candidates who are loyal to you, but if they're loyal to you but garbage candidates who can't win, uh, you've not only not gotten yourself an ally in the Senate, you've also uh, hurt the party and hurt the conservative movement. And so, you know, the choices that we made in some of those races were really disappointing. A lot of folks still have concerns. They're stinging about the 2020 election and the prospect of election fraud, election regularity. But it's become a litmus test for many. And it is for Donald Trump. In fact, you're talking about his his allocation of his his giant uh, pot of money there. New Hampshire was a state. I think we had a chance to win uh, with the candidate up there. Uh, Senator uh, Maggie Hassan, of course, defeated Don uh, Bullduck, who I think was a quality Republican candidate. But Trump uh, actually elected not to provide uh, some funding and some capital uh, to the Baldock campaign because he disavowed his previous stance uh, on uh, the election fraud. He, he initially said, yeah, I think the election was stolen. Trump was behind him. Then he disavowed that. I think for political purposes in New Hampshire, honestly. I, I think I think that's probably right. And then Trump said, okay, I'm out. I'm not going to help you anymore. And he dumped all his money in Ohio, or a big chunk of his money, to, Up there for JD to push Vance. J.D. Vance, which just keeps us even uh, with um, uh, Portman, Senator Portman stepping right. down. So uh, we we got to get away from these litmus tests. we got to get more nuanced. we got to be more holistic, I think. That's right. And, we, and it ties in, I mean, it's sort of the other side of the coin of what we were talking about, about the need for specificity. Most people, I understand there are people who feel very strongly about the 2020 election. That is not an election winner. The no, overwhelming majority of Americans don't believe that. Correct. And if that is your messaging, feel free to believe it. But if that is your core messaging or a major piece of your messaging, it is going to get you beat in almost every election in Let's this country. Let's be honest. And we got to get past it's it. It's the factor to a number of voters, including in our state. You're, if you don't support the idea of election fraud, I can't support you. That's right. <laughs> We're still seeing that. That's, that's, that's exactly right. It's not good politics. Mm. Lucia, appreciate you coming on. Always A- good. Absolutely, Gerard. Good Thank to be you, with sir. you. Yeah, man. Rachel Myers, Deputy Director, Two Mississippi Museums, coming up next. The Element Well Studios down here at Two Museums in beautiful downtown Jackson. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi.
Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi at two museums today, two Mississippi museums, actually. And we are here with uh, Rachel Myers, the Deputy Director of Two Mississippi Museums. Rachel, That's me. Thanks for coming on. Uh, noticing the ceremonies out here with the National Guard. I just saw General Boyles at the podium. Lots of press. We got the National Guard uh, ensemble here entertaining us with the patriotic music. Tell us what we got going on today. Absolutely. It's Veterans Day at the Two Mississippi Museums. I don't know if your listeners can hear us right now. We have a 21 uh, gun salute that's happening currently. I hear it, yes. And we're about to um, hear taps being played. This is a program we've done, uh, ooh, I believe it's been about five years, uh, a partnership uh, with the military, and this is this is the State Veterans Day program. We okay. always have some elected officials, like you're saying. Yeah. Uh, but it's great. It's a great day to celebrate. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And I've noticed also some uh, school children that uh, are here, I guess, for a tour. That's our bread well. and butter. We have over 350 middle school students in the building today. Wow. And that's you know, when people tell me, you know, what do you do all day, Rachel? I say, I, I run up and down the stairs with school kids. <laughs> we have had hundreds of thousands of students here, and this this is the largest classroom to learn about Mississippi history. That is awesome. And it's fun for me to reflect on. It's our five-year anniversary. It's hard to believe. We've had fourth graders who came in here in 2018, and now they're, they're in middle school. They're in high school, and How they're coming that? back and learning new stories. What kind of reaction do you get uh, to the children who, who see this for the first time to either of the museums? What, what do they say? I mean, number one, the facility is fantastic. It really is. Their students are coming from all over the state, from Tupelo all the way down to Ocean Springs. So they've yep. been on a bus for two hours, and they arrive at our facility, and they really get to walk through history in real life. They see artifacts. They hear stories. We have a dynamite education staff, storytellers, walking them through and bringing them back through time. So they have a sense of this place and, and what made Mississippi, Mississippi. Yeah, it's it truly is uh, awesome. And, you know, last year when we did the show here, I was approached by... A, a visitor who was uh, about to take the tour of the uh, museum, in particular starting with the Civil Rights Museum, from Michigan, yeah. a, a veteran from Michigan. That happens all the time, doesn't it? People walk through, not only do they see themselves on the walls, like, that's my aunt, that's my grandfather telling stories, but the buses are back. You know, through COVID, yeah, we had true. kind of an up and down. The tour buses are back. People from Michigan, from Minnesota, from Montana, those are all my M's, uh, they are here <laughs> to learn not only about Mississippi history, but about American history history and they're going on tours throughout the south yeah. uh, we are very very happy to have them and we have um hezekiah watkins who is a civil rights veteran himself who is always here talking in story this is an authentic experience at the museum yeah it really is and and lucia and i were just talking in the last segment about uh highlighting mississippi through its uh, its its path uh to civil rights the civil rights movement starting really from the the beginning uh where mississippi doesn't have a lot to be proud of but i think as you move through the museum, you see how we progressed and through the years, we, through the decades. And we end up with students. Yeah. We end up with students. I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, I get, no I get no. excited about this. Yeah, Can you imagine? Awesome. Great. Uh, we really focus on the, the bravery the resilience, the strategies that Mississippians were using to to make a better society for all Mississippians. And, you know, there is definitely some difficult, violent history through both of these museums, but we hope people leave feeling encouraged and excited about what's to come. Yeah, and, you know, I I will say the very first time that I toured it, uh, uh, a bit of sadness uh, Mm kind of overcame me. As you see some of these authentic photos, again, nothing to be proud of, uh, clearly a stain on our past, and accurate history but as you move through you see the progress and then you start uh, uh feeling uh, some some degree of satisfaction that we we got it right 
And now students are growing up with this place that has always been. They know that the state of Mississippi is always ready to confront and embrace our history. This summer, we ran a summer camp program for the first time, and we had over 40 students in here learning about Mississippi history and civil rights history. And by the end of their two weeks with us, they had their docent pins on, and they were guiding visitors through the museums. They felt empowered and excited to start talking about Mississippi history. Yeah. So that, that's that's our goal. We're raising a whole new generation of Mississippians who, who know and understand this. Oh, that's, that's great. Right, so are there any plans to expand or add exhibits to either of the museums that you can talk well, we about? we got a long list. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, this, this again, we're five years old, so we always have a list of enhancements that will with time, but, uh, you know, we always have a temporary exhibition gallery upstairs. We've got two that are coming now. I'm at Till at the um, Sovereignty now as well. So things are always going and developing. We've got new stories to tell. In terms of the exhibits, I don't know. Someone's got something to donate. <laughs> That's the thing. When we first opened, everyone was clamoring to make donations. And, and now as people walk through, they say, oh, yeah, I've got my grandmother sure. so-and-so. And sure. so I think our folks in collections have a long list of things that they would sure. like to see on display. With respect to the Civil Rights Museum, uh, Rachel, we just got about 30 seconds left. Is there an equivalent in our country? This, this? is the only state-funded state civil rights museum in the country. Everything else is private. The state of Mississippi is putting their money where their mouth is. Gotcha. Well, it's awesome. You guys do a great job, and, and we are proud to uh, be with you here today. And, and uh, certainly uh, with Veterans Day coming up tomorrow, it's very important that we honor and remember and recognize our veterans. Absolutely. Thanks for coming down. We appreciate you. You got it. Rachel Myers, Deputy Director of Two Mississippi Museums, has been our guest. we got Super Talk News, Fox News coming up now. When we come back, more talk. And then Donnie Dukes, current Vice President of the Mississippi Veterans Affairs Board, and also the incoming president. Stay with us. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays coming at you live from two Mississippi museums in downtown Jackson. Joining us now, Donnie Dukes. He is the chief warrant officer for Mississippi and also a member of the National Guard. Uh, good to have you on there. Thank you, Gerard. So, uh, Donnie, tell us exactly what a chief warrant officer is. And, oh, before you do that, your, your role in the Guard as it pertains to veterans. So... A chief warrant officer is basically a quiet professional that uh, gets to stay in his profession for a long period of time, so okay. he can advise his commanders better on you know on the battlefield. Okay. So they do it for a long period of time, uh, and commanders use them uh, to make good decisions. Okay. So you're uh, like an advisor, yes, consultant, uh, so to speak. We are. So are you responsible in that role for uh, gathering and analyzing, processing all the data, the intelligence, and then uh, assisting the decision makers based on that? So we have different warrants, uh, aviation warrants. We have maintenance warrants. We have military intelligence warrants. Uh, so me, 
like being in aviation. Okay. Uh, maintenance was my background, and I did it for almost 30 years. Okay. So I would move aircraft uh, all over theater. The commanders would ask me, you know, how are we going to do this, and we would advise them. So I understand. And the rest of the warrants do the same thing. I understand. All right, great. So, all right, tell us what we got going on here today at two Mississippi museums. I see the National Guard uh, band entertaining us. Lots of dignitaries, and and we have to give props to the band. They're, they're awesome. They, they are awesome. They're awesome. Uh, they're, they're at every event, uh, and they do a great job. They so. certainly do. Um, but today is, you know, we're honoring Veterans Day. Right. And uh, this morning I went and talked at my granddaughter's school, first and second grade. I was not prepared for some of those questions. It was, okay. uh, it, w- it was, it was a treat. Uh, but, you know, for me to show pride in Mississippi and for uh, me to show pride in our soldiers, I'm the command chief warrant for the state of Mississippi. Okay. And I represent the warrants. I'm their voice. So I'm their servant, basically. And I'm proud to do that. Um, we have so many good soldiers in the state, uh, especially on Veterans Day. Uh, we have so many people that pay a sacrifice, not only overseas, but in our state. Right. You know, for like for the water crisis. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, we went and visited all the soldiers that did that. There's a sense of pride and a soldier that gets to help his community, which is amazing. And uh, makes them more proud to serve their nation. Yeah. So that's a little bit of a difference between the National Guard and the yeah. regular Army. Yeah. That's a great point. I, I happened to see General Boyles speak about a week ago. He said the same thing, Donnie. He said that the, the folks in the Guard, the soldiers in the Guard say, this is what I signed up to do. When when they're out helping in their communities and, and, and seeing the benefits of their service right there on the ground, he said, that's what I signed up to do. It is. It's really gratifying. You know, when you raise your hand and uh, swear to God to defend the country, you're not only defending your country, but you're defending the state and the people in it. Sure. So uh, he also said something about a deployment that might be coming up. Tell us about that. So we have, uh, right now we have the 112th, 113th MPs. Um, They're deploying to Alaska and uh, also in El Paso to help with border missions. Um, We'll probably end up having about 2,000 more soldiers by the end of the year deploy uh, aviation. Um, We have the 155. We have the 184th. You know, we're always deploying. We're always doing our duty. Um, And today is a great day to notice those families, you know, that, are at home while these guys and gals are gone. And uh, I'd like to pay tribute to them and tell them how much we appreciate their sacrifice. Yes, sir, absolutely. We certainly do. How important is it uh, that we remember our veterans and and, uh, uh, pay homage and and celebrate Veterans Day? It's it's huge. Um, You know, over the course of all the wars, I think there's been... Uh, the people that have laid down their lives have been over 1,340,000 uh, soldiers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, freedom is not free. And uh, and we'll continue to uh, do our job and do our duty. So. Absolutely. Uh, originated, I believe, the first day was 1947 comes to mind. So 1947 okay. was 
when they announced it Veterans Day. Okay. It was, uh, I think, Robert Weeks from uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham, right. Uh, but at the end of World War One, um, the 11th hour, 11th day, 11th month is when World War One ended, and it was known as Armistice Day. Armistice Day, so, yeah. yeah. Um, wow. So uh, celebrations across the country, including here in the great state of Mississippi. They do. And uh, I think... You know, like I told you, I went to my granddaughter's school this morning and yeah. talked about veterans and some of the questions that uh, they asked me I was not prepared for from first well, and share, second grade. Share that with us. Give, give us an example <laughs> or two. Come on. So, you know, there's always, uh, you know, how many people have you killed, uh, that kind of thing. And then you have, yeah. to, you have to explain to these children and uh, that we're not just here for to be in a war. Yeah. You know, we... we we support the nation and the state in several different things, like water for sure. purification. Sure. Uh, you know, we help with disaster relief. Uh, we Absolutely. help more than we are on the front. So they uh, they had some awesome questions. You know, they, they want to know how high I used to fly <laughs> and how high a helicopter could go. Well, that's so reasonable that, question that is, for an aviator. That is. Absolutely. So they, well, uh, that is awesome. So... Uh, do you feel like, uh, Donnie, with, with, it seems like so many of our country have uh, just now hold this contempt for the military. Do you feel like that having gone to school that there's respect uh, for the uniform? You're, you're in the, the, the dress blues, as they say today. Uh, looks just awesome, sir. So thank you. you know. that, uh, this is the AGSU uniform, but what they used to wear in World War II. Okay. Um, I like it. Uh, but in Mississippi, you know, more than most, uh, people take pride and Good. they stop and they tell us as soldiers how much they appreciate us. You know, I get... I hate to go to lunch in my uniform because somebody's going to stop and pay for my lunch. Yeah. And But they feel honored, and that Absolutely. makes me proud to serve the state of Mississippi and the nation, really. So glad to hear that. And it's important, is it not, though, Donnie, that, and I'm so grateful that you were invited and able to stand in front of children uh, so that they see the goodness of the, the great folks that uh, sacrifice and serve in our military, and you, and you represent us so well And as an ambassador. It's important we do that to our youngsters. It sure is. Um, you know, in the Mississippi National Guard, we have over 12,000 soldiers. And on a percentage-wise, uh, the regular Army has 440,000. And they are way down on their recruiting and retention. And in the Guard, we are not hurting as bad because, okay. I think it's because of our patriotism. Hmm. Okay. Uh, because people see what we do for the community. They see what we do. You know, you get a kid that can look in the mirror and say, hey, I've done something for my country. Yeah. You know, that, that means a lot. So, you know, if you're a young man or woman and you want to be a part of something greater than, you know, than just, you know, maybe going to school or whatever. Or your ser- yep. Right. Going, serving your country and your state is huge. You know, so the National Guard would be a great place for them. 
Well, I can certainly say anecdotally any experience and interaction I've ever had with a member of the Guard, no matter where it is in the state of Mississippi, it's always been a positive one. They're they're so respectful. And you're right. I go out of my way, like so many great folks do in our state, to to express my appreciation and gratitude for their sacrifice uh, and their service. And, and well, we we should. They're just an important and integral role. Uh, of our communities and as our states. The Guard in particular, because you're so right, when the disasters hit, and unfortunately we've had our share of them the last few years. We sure have. um, They play a key role in helping us get on our feet and just protecting us, keeping us uh, safe, and and getting through these situations. And and it makes me proud to be, you know, a voice for them because I see these young soldiers that get out there and they truly care about Mississippi, and they care about the people. That's that awesome. makes them proud. That's so good to hear. We've been talking to Donnie Dukes. He's the chief warrant officer uh, for the National Guard, state of Mississippi. Appreciate you coming on. Yes, Thank sir. You Thank service, you, Mr. Sir. Thank you. We'll step aside for a break right here. We're at two Mississippi museums today. Stay with us. Days with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. That would be Van Halen with right now bumping us into this segment here. We are at two Mississippi museums. That's because it's Veterans Day tomorrow, folks. And we're going to be down, in fact, at Camp Shelby tomorrow for a Veterans Day. We'll be, uh, not only will we be there, but Super Eagle Hour will also be live on Friday at Camp Shelby celebrating Veterans Day 2022. You're invited to tour the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum and recognize the sacrifices and service of Mississippians who have served their country in the U.S. military. And we certainly are grateful for their sacrifice and service. Also wanted to pass on that tonight, if I can find the details here. Hold on a second. It's um, Squat and Gobble. The Squat and Gobble event at the Country Club of Jackson. This is a, a fundraiser that uh, benefits domestic abuse. And that's going to be happening. It's This event's been around for quite some time. It's going to be happening tonight at the Country Club of Jackson. 
And I'm going to be there as uh, a celebrity judge. Uh, please, Lou, that's what they're calling me. No celebrity, that's for sure. But I've been asked to judge the squatting and the gobbling. Actually, it's dancing. But uh, there's also uh, a silent auction as well. And you can check out more about this event at cause.com. Cause.com, yeah, I believe, is the website. Looking forward to that. So on the ceasefire text line, the past is history, and history should be used to learn from not repeat the same mistakes. And that is from Mike in Gulfport. He, uh, he also said, sorry to say, but I think the Dems are thanking Trump, or thinking Trump will kill off any Republicans who run against him. They will go after both houses of Congress and get all three branches again. Uh, Lucian, don't shoot our only chance in Georgia, as you, as you said, both are bad picks, but who picked them? Yeah, I hear you, Mike. Uh, you know, there was a, another candidate in Pennsylvania, McCormick, that I actually think had a dead gum good chance of winning, certainly better than uh, did Mehmet Oz, who got defeated. It's hard to believe he got defeated by Fetterman, who's maybe the most unqualified candidate ever for the U.S. Senate, but he did. Uh, and I, I still say that in in so-called swing states like Pennsylvania, which are so evenly divided, and certainly Georgia is evolving that way uh, as as well. Candidate personalities do make a difference, and in particular because you're typically relying on swing voters, uh, independent voters, I, I guess probably better described, that can vote either way, are not rigid to one party uh, or another. And I do think they make their decision often on the basis of the personalities. Now, of course, you may say Fetterman, is, what, what's so great about his? I agree. It's, it's shocking to me. Hard to believe uh, that he could prevail. But I, I just think folks felt these, these um, squishy middle type independent voters, believe it or not, felt better about his prospects and, and him serving in the Senate than Mehmet Oz, which is, is hard to believe. But we can either dismiss it and say, well, it was just election fraud is what did it, and, you know, ignore the the, the votes that were cast for uh, for Fetterman that turned out to be more than for Oz. We can either just dismiss that or we can take some heed and take some instruction from the outcome and do some soul searching and figure out what do we got to do to overcome this. I, I agree with Lucian in that. We've got to put forth a, a message of uh, specificity and be more definitive on how exactly we're going to address what are top-of-mind issues to the voters. Uh, polls all showed, exit polls showed, yeah, inflation, cost of living, rising prices, still number one issue. But Republicans really didn't offer much, uh, much hope. Uh, or much uh, definitive uh, um, specificity in their approach to uh, to curing that problem. I just didn't hear much from them that you could say that uh, the commitment to America to some extent, but it still was very abstract and very high level. The the main thing I heard out of Kevin McCarthy is we're not going to vote for the to fund the eighty seven thousand IRS agents, but specifically with respect to boosting supply. Uh, 
and boosting supplies, really fiscal policy that would unleash the animal spirits of the private sector. Just didn't hear a whole lot about that. The oil and gas economy, the oil and gas industry, has pretty much had the long uh, arm of government on its neck uh, for some time since Joe Biden took office, and even a couple of days ago, as we discussed yesterday, he said, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna end the coal industry in this country." And you didn't really hear any any response or or um, reaction too much from the Republicans on that matter. They just didn't say anything about it. Uh, also, I, I read a really. Uh, interesting report about dealing with inflation from a fiscal policy perspective and it's certainly true that that uh, eliminating the deficit addressing the deficit and deficit spending which just pumps money into the economy without producing anything it's a major factor in uh, the inflation that we are all enduring right now so if if that's the case and we need to get a hold on spending and bring it down, what exactly are we going to reduce spending on? We've still got this issue of mandatory spending, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all the other programs that are statutory in nature, and then debt interest, which is rising rapidly as interest rates also increase. We've still got that, that it's very difficult, if not impossible, to reform without 60 votes of filibuster-proof Senate and assuming they'd all be on board with uh, any kind of major meaningful reforms to those programs. Heck, we got an 8.3% cost of living raise coming in Social Security next year, which is going to increase spending without there being any revenue to offset it. And then on the other side of the House, with respect to discretionary spending, we're, we're dealing there with the military and then all the other government apparatus. So it is, it is thought that to um, by, by some economists that to just reduce inflation by one percent, we would have to reduce spending by about seven hundred and fifty billion dollars. Now, just for perspective, that means we could eliminate the entire Department of Defense to buy ourselves to buy the nation a one percent reduction in spending. Uh, uh, excuse me, inflation. One percent reduction of inflation. Seven hundred fifty dollars, million dollars, billion dollars cut. Uh, the entire military. Sorry, I was distracted by some folks walking by talking to me. Apologize for that. But uh, if you eliminated the entire Department of Defense, seven hundred and fifty billion dollars, you could get a one percent reduction in inflation. Nobody's going to jump up and down about that. So what the heck can we do to boost supply? And that never gets talked about. Well, that's got to start with, uh, again, getting government out of the way of the oil and gas industry, the petroleum industry, the fossil fuels industry. And that means that government's got to give them some degree of faith, confidence, and certainty that they're going to stay out of their way. But this running around, as Joe Biden and the Democrats have been doing, suggesting that you guys are going out of business, we're ending the use of fossil fuels in this country, that doesn't bode well to increase supply of oil and gas, which is uh, such a a, a key cost component that is woven into into the production of so many goods 
that we consume in this country, including transporting of those goods, obviously. So we just didn't really get any clear message on how do you intend to achieve that. And and even though we got CPI numbers today, by the way, if you hadn't checked, the inflation number, the CPI came in lower than expected at 7.7% for the month of October. That is a decrease from September of 8.2%, so a 0.5% decline month over month. That's still the annual uh, rate of inflation of 77 The markets reacted very positively to that. My concern is that this is a temporary dip. A temporary dip, and the in the reason that I feel that might be the case is because a number of companies in the last couple of weeks have announced their intent to raise prices. They've said enough; we can't keep absorbing these higher input costs. It will be interesting to see what um, the purchasing manager's report shows in terms of the cost of production inputs. That will be even perhaps a more meaningful metric on where inflation's going. Taking a break right here. Coming right back. We're at two Mississippi museums. Mississippi. It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi Live at two Mississippi museums on the C Spire text line. All I've heard from McCarthy, this is from Jason, is about dog and pony shows fit for cable news, investigating Fauci, Hunter, etc., etc. Not a word on addressing actual problems. CJ in the Delta, liberalism is a disease, so you cannot change weak minds, even with the truth. The younger folks have been bombarded and brainwashed, so Democrats vote Democrat almost 100% of the time. You know, I would say also, CJ, Republicans vote Republican. I, I think it's um, it's blue no matter who and red until you're dead. It just seems like where we are in this country, we, we are polarized along that and don't seem to pay a whole lot of, of attention to policy. Uh, that, that seems to have been lost in our uh, political discourse. We need more informed voters. Ignorance is what elected Fetterman. That on the ceasefire text line. Jake in the Delta. If Fetterman has another medical issue, would his wife be able to fill his role, fill his role when he recovers? I've heard that I do not know if it's true. Well, I don't think that's how it works, Jake. I, I haven't looked at Pennsylvania law, but I don't believe that just because a, uh, a sitting member of the Senate is, uh, gets to the point where they can no longer serve because of uh, some sort of uh, mental deficiencies or other physical ailments, uh, the seat just doesn't automatically transfer to their spouse. I don't think that's the case at all. So there would be, uh, in Mississippi, as you know, if, uh, should there be a seat vacated while in office, uh, a U.S. Senate seat, well, then it, it's up to the governor at that point. power of the governor comes into play to a point someone, a person of their choosing, to finish out the term, and then the next time that seat is up for election, 
it's just a standard uh, election, primary and a general election to replace or to fill the seat, I should say. The person appointed would have to run if they wanted to retain the seat. That's happened here in Mississippi several times, as most people know. Senator Wicker was appointed. Senator Cindy Highsmith, both were appointed, and then both subsequently ran in elections in the next cycles when those seats were up for re-election. Well, uh, let's see, a couple other. Uh, uh, was that number of men that died in battle just Marines or all branches? That was from uh, Donnie Dukes. Approximately 1.5 million, I think, Americans have died in war. That's all branches. All branches. Republicans have warned six-plus years ago that Trump would take the party down. He's done a pretty good job, Robert. There's one thing, Rhino, I get your opinion on this, that, that it just appears at least just eyeballing the text that we have received the last couple of days on the ceasefire text line. There seems to be broad agreement, consensus, that Trump was more of a liability in this election than an asset and that his grip on the party is problematic going forward. There seem to be a lot of folks that would like to see the the torch passed to Governor DeSantis who really whooped up on uh, his opponent uh, down there, Charlie Crist, the Democrat candidate for governor down there in Florida, and turned Miami and, and Dade County, traditionally a Democrat stronghold, turned it red as a result. Marco Rubio as well defeated Val Demings, uh, also a formidable candidate, used to be a member of the House. Is that kind of what you see as well, Rhino? Does that seem to be the the trend? Yeah, it seems like, for whatever reason, Trump has lost a lot of favorability in the middle, a decent chunk of favorability with what you would just call your everyday average Republican, while somehow still gaining acceptance from the far right to a certain extent, and then you get to the way to the far right, and they hate him. It's yeah, just weird. It, it seems like it. Yeah, I, I totally I totally agree. I, I just think his, his rather caustic personality, I, I, I think that it's fair to say, and I've just put this out there to our audience, I'll just share that personally I have encountered lots of folks in the last year or so that, as, as, as did I, supported Trump in uh, 16, obviously supported him in 20 as well, but are now saying, I hope he backs off, I hope he gets out of the way, uh, I hope he, he becomes, I guess, less visible uh, as kind of the default leader of the, of the party. I've encountered lots of people around here saying that privately they they like me agreed that he was a good president from a policy perspective his america first approach and agenda i think were well received and what the nation needed and we we certainly were safe where we prospered the border wasn't in chaos we restored our respect on the global stage all those were positive outcomes of the trump presidency there's no doubt about that but I think we're at the point, or a lot of folks, at least that I've talked to, are saying it's time to, to move on. And I'd like to see somebody else uh, fill those shoes and, and step into that role. What do you think, folks? I mean, that's just what I've heard from. Uh, and these are uh, obviously very uh, committed and loyal Republican supporters. This is what I've heard. 
And I think you're seeing a lot of that uh, across the nation, honestly. Thomas and Greenwood says he's not going to go away. We are going to have to turn our backs on him. He also said now that this election benefited the Democrats. Will we see anything else from the January 6th committee? He's too valuable to the Democrats to be in jail. I'm not mistaken, most of that committee either retired or didn't run, uh, or excuse me, or, or lost their bid for re-election. So I'm not sure what's left of the committee. And I don't also feel like that we're going to see much out of them with the House flipping. I'm not sure they would have control. Also, it's my understanding that uh, Congressman Michael Guest has uh, has a shot, a strong shot, at serving as the chair of the Homeland Security Committee in the House of Representatives, assuming that the Republicans uh, do maintain or do uh, take control of the House. That would be kind of interesting, uh, Rhino, to have uh, Benny Thompson, Congressman Benny Thompson from Mississippi, pass the torch to Republican Michael Guest from Mississippi for that same committee assignment, That uh, the chair of that same committee. That's um, just interesting in my view. Ben from Madison says DeSantis should be the next president of the United States. I knew that couldn't be true. This is talking about Fetterman. But I promise I have seen it on the news more than once. Fake news. Hi, that's Jake in the Delta talking about this idea that his wife would step in and uh, take over the seat should Fetterman become unable to serve. And honestly, I'm not even sure how that works. From a Senate perspective, a member of Congress, can you impeach a member of Congress uh, to oust them on the grounds that they're physically or mentally unfit? Is there kind of a 25th Amendment rule in running the uh, the Congress, uh, the Senate in particular in this case? I'm not sure. But it's it's thought. Now, I did see, is it Nicole Wallace Rhino over there at MSNBC? I saw an interview with her where she was floating the idea of Fetterman for president. You guys see that? Oh, Fetterman yeah. for president. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. I think, on the ceasefire text line, I think Trump is president and DeSantis is vice president to help turn the country around, then eight years of DeSantis as president. Honestly, I don't think that's a winning ticket. I just don't think Donald Trump can win in the next cycle. I don't. You guys may have a different take on that. Uh, I think that ship has sailed. And it would be a tough one. Now, I would say that DeSantis and how about Lee Zeldin, who just uh, had an incredible showing in the, the deep blue state of New York in the governor's race, taking on incumbent Kathy Hochul. I really thought he was going to win that race. But once again, he lost in New York City. And he ran more on crime is the big problem and we got to do something about it. That was his key message. And, and most of that occurs in New York City. He, of course, is from upstate New York, the Hudson Valley. And, uh, and, he, and he got beat. I was sh- shocked at that. I think he would make an excellent vice presidential candidate. Just something to think about. I mean, even if you take out Pat, the electability of Trump, it's tough to see a Trump-DeSantis ticket because both of them seem to have their eyes on the presidency or running for the presidency. And when's the last time you saw any time where somebody didn't win the primary and bowed out gracefully and then got picked as a VP candidate? Yeah, that's exactly right. That it, It's often thought. Uh, I mean, it happened, it happened with Kamala. 
but I, I think that was the the tokenism of her her race and gender. It's just it's kind of a a tanked deal already in the books, if you if you will. You give up twenty percent of the country in terms of votes before you even get started with Trump on the ceasefire tax line. Thomas and Greenwood would Toomey have retired if not for his tiff with Trump? I'm not sure. It's it's an interesting thought. I thought Toomey was a fantastic senator. Somebody here on the ceasefire text line after I said that got mad because Toomey did um, support uh, the the January 6th commission. But, again, I'm not a one-issue voter. I thought he was an excellent senator despite that. Coming right back, uh, we got a break coming up right here. And then Pamela Jr., director of two Mississippi museums, with us next. Stay with us. Come on. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday, Super Talk Mississippi live at two Mississippi museums on this beautiful Thursday. We've got Pamela Jr., director of two Mississippi museums, now in the Element Well Studios. Pamela, thanks for coming on. Oh, yes, always a pleasure to be here. It has been a rather festive day here at two Mississippi museums. The National Guard, the ceremonies, uh, Adjutant General Jansen Boyles, the fantastic National Guard band entertaining us. Oh, it's been wonderful. And they were playing some great jazz earlier, so it's been a good day. We're close here. We can hear it. It's it's (laughs) awesome. It's been a great day. And we've had uh, children as well coming wow. through the museum and that's always wonderful i think that group was from smilo prep yep. and it's just wonderful to have children in here where they can just be fed the history of mississippi yeah it's it's awesome and for those who have not taken the time to tour uh this facility in these museums it's world-class it, it really is. is. It is. The Secretary of the Smithsonian, Lonnie Bunch, Dr. Uh-huh. Bunch, said that, Pamela, these museums are second to ours, but it's, it's right there. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best thing he could have well, said for me. we'll take that, we'll take I it. think. We'll, take, we'll it. take that, especially being located right here in downtown Jackson oh, yes. uh, in the state of Mississippi, uh, which is awesome. So we were talking earlier to Rachel Myers, the deputy director here, about the number of visitors from out of state that come here and this is on their bucket list uh when they visit the state to tour these museums it it's uh evokes a sense of pride i think that they come through the museums they get uh really the history of mississippi but also the civil rights movement this is kind of the uh, ground zero for that and what i hope they come away with honestly um uh, Pamela, is that they, they see the museum, it starts out, and you see uh, the, the rather difficult, challenging, and dark days in our history. There's, mm-hmm. there's, we've got to embrace that and be honest about that. There's no questioning that. But as they move through, they see the progress.
progress that's been made in the state of Mississippi. And I, and I hope they, they leave with uh, the attitude that uh, these guys figured it out. That's the way I feel. And, and that's very true. As we tell people, go through the Mississippi History Museum first. Yeah. Because we want you to understand even why the movement, the civil rights movement, even started here. And it was ground zero. But they do. They get a sense of completion when okay. they walk out, out of the museums. It. And it's, it's, as I tell people, when they walk out, I tell staff members, don't ask them that they enjoy it. Ask them how the journey was. Yeah. Because going through Mississippi, this journey, I, when I go out of town and I'm talking to people, I say, you know, there's a there's that romantic, romanticized side of Mississippi that everybody loves, and then there's the comp- complicated yeah. Mississippi. And you fuse those two things together, yeah. and you have this amazing place called Mississippi. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's us. That's us. That's absolutely so true. And then and then the uh, the students, the school children, yeah. uh, come through as well. And my guess is they they get uh, exposed to this perhaps in the classrooms, in the books, and in photos. And then they come through here and they get to witness it firsthand. And, it, and it's done in such a realistic fashion. That's hopefully making a positive impression on them. And I hope when they when they tour and they go through the journey, as you put it, which I think is an excellent way to describe it, and they leave with a sense of pride and a positive uh, view of our state. They do. They do. The after they go through the the history museum and then from there to the civil rights museum the last quote that they see when they walk out that door is about Osceola McCarty out yeah, of Hattiesburg sure. if you want to be proud of yourself yeah. you have got to do things you can be proud of so we leave them they walk out with a charge yeah. but they walk out and it's just so wonderful to see their eyes light up because they understand now it's on you now it's on your community yeah, that's what point. we want them to, to understand uh, what uh, tell us about some of the unique uh, features of the museum, in particular the Civil Rights Museum. I, I know um, some of my favorite areas are when you can actually put the headphones on, as I recall, yes, and, yes. and and hear recordings yes. uh, explaining the exhibits as you're going through there. Yes, it's incredible. Yes. That is wonderful. That's our audibles that mm-hmm. we have, okay. and people are able to really hear the information because when you're just walking through and you're reading, it 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 it, it takes you to a place, but even takes you to a, a better place when you hear somebody talking about it. But for me, it is Gallery 7 and and that is where you find Vernon Damer. Okay. So to see his sons standing up there, four of them with 75 years of, of, of being in the military, that really evokes this, this, this charge for me because their dad was here in Mississippi fighting to be an American right, right. when his sons were fighting for America. That's amazing. Yes. What yes. a juxtaposition. I, I'm uh, I'm glad to know about that. I'll pay more attention to that next time. Thanks for thanks for pointing that out. That is uh, that's just excellent to know, and I think it speaks again to the rich history and culture of Mississippi. As do the museums. I think we're unique in that respect. That's we're right. a melting pot. We are. We and are. It, and it's uh, you get the sense of that when you go through. Pamela, appreciate it. Appreciate you having us here today. I know we're going to talk. Later on the program. Yeah. Congratulations, big day. Thanks Thank a lot. you. Yep. Thank you so much. We're taking a break right here for the news, Super Talk News and Fox News coming your way. And then the Adjutant General of the Mississippi National Guard, General Jansen Boyles, joins us after the break.
And now, and now, another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone, to Midday Super Talk Mississippi Live. The Element Wealth Studios are at two Mississippi museums today. We've got Veterans Day coming up uh, tomorrow. Joining us now right here at two Mississippi museums is the Adjutant General of the Mississippi National Guard, General Jansen Boyles. Always good to see you, General. You too, Gerard. Appreciate so, you having me. Yes, sir. Uh, ceremonies this morning out here yeah. uh, on the uh, concrete pad. Uh, really enjoyed the National Guard band. They're pretty good, aren't they? They, they are. And, uh, you know, they actually played at the fair this year and uh, had some sessions at the fair. Just They really enjoy entertaining, and they do very well. And they can they can do jazz bands. They can do other things besides just military They're events. very good. They're very good. They're excellent. Yeah. All right, so tell us about the ceremonies this morning. Uh, what so, happened there? So uh, our association partners with the uh, music museums to do this event and it's really really a wonderful event where we just invite veterans to come and be recognized and uh, we have a program that recognizes at least one veteran a year typically someone we've lost and uh, today we recognized a brigadier general joe leslie who i actually knew personally okay but uh, just a just a wonderful ceremony this morning and um, uh, they just did a great job and of course the weather cooperated yeah absolutely yeah it's uh, it's important uh, as Americans, is it not, General, to uh, take some time to reflect on the service and the sacrifice uh, of our our veterans, and uh, and to honor them as we do, uh, which we'll be celebrating tomorrow on Veterans Day across the nation. It's still important that we do that in our society. It is, and and maybe maybe. Pay it forward is an overused term, but yeah. I'll tell you that 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 I am who I am in the military because of the the men and women that came before me. Uh, they were an example for me. Uh, they mentored me. They uh, encouraged me when I needed encouragement. And um, we just need to remember the contribution they've made to just our peace and security, but also to the leadership we have currently in the military. I've, I've got look. I could name ten or twelve. Gentlemen who served in the Vietnam era okay. that were real mentors for me. And um, so we just need to recognize their service and sacrifice. That's a good point. You bring up the Vietnam era, and I think you and I are at the age, we were we were just behind that uh, mm-hmm. from an age-wise, uh, age perspective, that it was a generation before us, I yep. think is maybe one way to put it. But we, we are steadily losing our World War II veterans. We are. Uh, not many left. Uh, honestly, out there, and so the, the Vietnam era veterans, most of them in their seventies, mm-hmm. uh, they're aging as well. And I call attention to that general because that that is one of those wars that uh, was very controversial, uh, obviously. But uh, these men and women were just called to serve; their country called on them, and they just did it because that's what you do when your country calls you. And and though. Honestly, politicians may fight about the the merit of that war. Yeah. It's the military that's caught up in the middle of it, and they just go where they're told to go. And in this case, they went into extremely difficult circumstances. Many of them didn't didn't uh, return home. Yeah. But it's important that we still recognize them.
mean, they don't, maybe sometimes are, are, are a bit of um, a forgotten generation of uh, war heroes, but we still need to do that. Yeah, and I'd, I'd, I'd sort of argue that point in okay. that they're probably forgotten by the general population. Yeah. But, but I will truly tell you that the colonels and the general officers and the senior NCOs who um, were mentored by that group, I mean, they, they came back to the National Guard, uh, a number of them after serving on active duty, joined the Guard to get there 20 years or whatever. Okay. And, and, and I'm going to tell you, I had, I had really, truly some men who had served in some tough combat situations. Uh, who mentored me as a lieutenant and a captain, and I know other men currently serving at my level can tell you the same thing. So we have not forgotten okay, the impact that. they had on us. And think about this. Because of that mentorship, I'm making decisions today based on what they taught me to do. So the, the Vietnam veterans do have, the ones who contributed to the next generation of military leadership, have had an impact because we – we learn from them, and so that I'll leave you with that. Yeah, and yeah. I and I, I certainly appreciate that, and I'm yeah. glad to hear that. Yeah, uh, and they are honestly uh, a group that uh, dealt with uh, incredibly difficult, uh, horrendous circumstances, and often without the support of the nation uh, for what they were doing, which made it even more difficult. Also, the Korean War. I don't want to leave them out. I had a text there on the ceasefire text line. Was certainly right. wasn't trying no. to to uh, uh, omit them in the, in the discussion. No. no, that whole group is a special group. The World War II group, the Korean group, the um, the Vietnam group, and of course all of those veterans who have served after that. Yes, are all all special. Um, and I'll tell you, there I sort of missed the Korean mentorship piece because they had all gotten out. Yeah, and so that's when we're talking about Vietnam yeah, right now because sure. it affects the current leadership. Makes sense. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. All. it's just based on on time. Yeah. All right. So tomorrow, Veterans Day. Uh, we're going to be down at, at Camp Shelby. You and I have visited down there before at yeah. the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum. What a state treasure uh, yeah. that is. Tommy Loft and his group do a fantastic <laughs> job uh, with that deal. But Mississippi has a rich history in its service, in its military service. I, I would encourage everybody to go see that museum. It's, incredible. it's really incredible. And, you know, just so people understand what to expect, it tells individual stories all through you know the museum it's not you know it's i guess you have the character of the the uh, the wars that we fought over time but it really it's really interesting to learn about the people who have either lived in mississippi and served or we served in the national guard of course or formations who came through mississippi at camp shelby uh, before they went on to serve in other places, and um, because we just celebrated two yeah. divisions, I think there were four remaining active men who had been in these two divisions that came through Camp Shelby back in World War Two. Yeah, uh, and then and then also the people uh, in Mississippi who supported Camp Shelby and their individual stories, like the like the young lady who won the national riveting contest, I think, <laughs> and the trophies there on display. Yeah, sure are. So, it's awesome. Uh, so just some really neat stories. It, it is so well done. And then, of course, where we are here today at two Mississippi uh, museums, what fantastic treasures they are for the state of Mississippi. Yeah. A lot of, lot of great stories here also. Um, and 
you know, you've got a flavor of military here, but it really tells the story of Mississippi. No, no yeah. doubt about it. And of course, that is uh, woven into our military. I spoke to uh, Chief Warrant Officer CW Five Donnie Dukes earlier on the program, <laughs> okay. and he he was awesome. But he talked about uh, having the opportunity to speak at his uh, first or second grader school this morning. And he got some tough questions, as children <laughs> will do. And uh, some of those, frankly, uh, choked him up a little bit, got him a little yeah. emotional when they asked him about it. Because, they, you know, they see the military. They understand the military is, is a fighting force. Yeah. You know, and then their job is to, is to uh, uh, retard the enemy, essentially. So he got some tough questions. I'm sure he handled them masterfully. He's, he's, he's excellent at what he does. But it's important, is it not, General, that our, our rising generations – understand the role and the value of the military and respect our military as well. Yeah, and, and Gerard, I'll tell you that, that, that what's interesting is at the national level, the Army's having a tough time recruiting. I mean, the Army uh, is 440, 445,000 men and women, and they missed their mission by 40,000 people this year. Um, the Mississippi, the National Guard nationally was only about 2% below. We missed ours by about 6,000 uh, out of 335,000, so we're really in pretty good shape. Yeah. But it, it, it you know, it begs the question, what what are we what are we doing that we're missing those forty thousand you know young young people that are interested? I would argue that if I am a young person out there looking for an opportunity, uh, the the military is a great place to go, right? Because those jobs are out there, those opportunities are out there, and if you got that kind of gap, there's some promotion opportunities out there also. So makes total sense. Yeah. Uh, so, also with respect to the National Guard, what do you guys got going on these days? We got about a minute or so left. We'll catch it on the other side of the break. But give us an update on the Guard. I'll do that yeah. after the break. We, we got about uh, 30, okay. 40 seconds here. So, I'll just give you one snippet right now. Uh, under the term Homeland Defense, our MPs are actually deployed uh, both to the border and uh, up to Alaska doing a federal mission up there. And uh, then we've got other units that we are going to be deploying after the first of the year overseas. And I can tell you about that when we get back yeah. if you'd like. Yes, um, we, we got a, a bit of a report on that from uh, Donnie Dukes. Says guys are going to be flying around and moving around here pretty soon. They are, right? Yeah. yeah. About, about 2,000 out the door at one time. 2,000. Wow. Well, let's talk about the details on that when we come back. We've got the Adjutant General of the Mississippi National Guard, General Jansen Boyles, our guest here at two Mississippi museums. Middays is coming right back. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, on to the real part. On Super Talk Mississippi.
Good Days is back. The Element Well Studios relocated today down at two Mississippi museums in advance of Veterans Day. We're talking to the Adjutant General of the Mississippi National Guard. That would be General Jansen Boyle. So, all right, General, tell us what, what sort of plans you got on the boards uh, for the National Guard. You got some deployments coming up. You touched on that before we went to break. We do. And uh, so, so one of the tenets of the uh, National Defense Strategy is to uh, provide um, uh, protection for our partners and our allies across the world and for ourselves. Sure. And so by doing that, we deploy you know units overseas to either help train other countries or um, provide uh, whole ground in areas where we need to have a presence. So uh, Mississippi is participating in that this next year. We, ro- we rotate units out about every four to five years to do these kind of missions. Next year is just an interesting deal where we're, we're seeing our aviation brigade headquarters with an aviation team out of other states uh, to the Mideast. And so they'll be all over the Mideast holding ground. Uh, Our engineer brigade out of Vicksburg uh, is going over with units, engineer units from other states. They will be the headquarters for the Middle East holding ground. And uh, then our 155 brigade that everybody's familiar with out of Tupelo, the headquarters is going to be going to a training mission in Europe, Eastern Europe. So you can think about what that's entailing. And uh, they'll be overseeing units. They'll be doing training uh, with our partner countries there. And then... um the about 900 soldiers out of the 155 will be deploying overseas to hold ground in the Middle East, and they'll be doing presence patrols, those kind of things, doing some training with the Saudis and other other countries in that Middle Eastern area. So it's going to be an active year for us next year. How does that work, General? Because many many of uh, members of the Guard they got full time jobs as well, so their employers by law right are required to allow them to serve when they're deployed like this. Is that they, how they that are. works? Yeah. And, and I would th- Gerard, I would think that by now after. 20 years of doing this. Our employers are sort of seasoned experts oh, yeah. on how we do this. And, I certainly and, had it happen as an yeah. employer, yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting. Employers are, are very supportive. Yes. The employers that we deal with are very supportive. I'll tell you about a third about a third of our formation are full-time guardsmen. Okay. So uh, I've got one more unit that's going to uh, Germany as a maintenance unit. I'd say about 50% of that unit is full-time guard, and okay. they work on tanks and okay. wheeled vehicles. Yeah. So I'm an employer. Okay. Let them go down range also. Yeah. But the other two thirds, um, you know, they might be policemen, um, they might be firemen, um, they work for private industry, and those those teammates, those partners are very supportive. Yeah. Yeah. That's been my experience as well. I mean, generally speaking, businesses understand the value and the role, and they know uh, often, and, and look, we, we'd love any time uh, we had opportunities to hire folks that served in the Guard. They're pretty good people. You can count on them being good people, and they're they going to be good employees. And so the, the uh, little bit of sacrifice you have to make as an employer to accommodate their schedules while they're serving in the Guard is a small price to pay to get really good employees. I, I do, and there's some other pieces to it. For example, we do a lot of leadership training, yeah, and so um, an employer gets the benefit of our leadership training during our annual training periods and everything, or they might go off to a school. And I think that complements what the employer uh, gets back in return for their investment. 
And uh, there's no question that the military has been training leaders and managers for a long time. <laughs> they, they understand yeah. how to manage large organizations in particular and, and uh, uh, large organizations with complex organization charts. They're, they're the best in the world at that, honestly. And, and so and, and much of our, our private sector uh, has adopted those templates. Yeah, and, I, and I'm going to tell you, this, uh, this Ukraine problem set that we've got out there um, – you know, the way we train our leaders in the military, in the U.S. military, we sort of take for granted. And the rest of the world doesn't do it the way we do it. We we have sort of a flat uh, leadership program where we empower people at the lowest level to make decisions and be leaders. This This Russian formula is a vertical line. And so their decision makers are at the top. And then that, that soldier at the bottom is expected to execute that decision from the top. We've seen that play on Ukraine, and uh, we taught Ukraine how to do it our way. And so we think that a lot of the success on the battlefield is from empowering those lower-level uh, enlisted and NCOs to make decisions. Yeah, that that's awesome um, to, for you to bring that up. I was just reading yesterday in, in preparation for some remarks I delivered to a leadership class. I, I like to always refer to General Douglas MacArthur, who's yeah. written quite a bit about leadership and his his views on that. Mm-hmm. And, and as, as he talks about, I think there's 11 qualities that uh, he states are, are key traits of effective leaders. And one of those is that you empower your subordinates, using kind of the term of the day back then, empowering subordinates. And then he said, are you a a dictator or a delegator in your leadership style? It still applies today, here, 70, 80 years later. Yeah. No question. And, 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 you know, some of that's going to be personality-driven. Yeah. But but the success of the U.S. military is is simply that we empower people at the lowest level to make decisions. And, And... because you simply can't anticipate anything from no. from your perch as, as the leader. And, and hopefully what you've done is trained them and given them the tools and the information and, and the knowledge to make those tough decisions, which in the military are often life or death, of course. Right. So, and, and, and I'll say it, it's, it's, it's been good to see the, the Ukraine problem set again because now these these other countries who might have been reluctant to adopt our ways of ah, training and empowering uh, they're now asking a lot of questions seeing that not work out so yeah. well so our relationship uh, every state has one or two relationships with other countries so ukraine and california were tied together and california uh had a standing relationship with Ukraine, still does. Um, ours is with Uzbekistan. You've heard that before. Yes. And so Uzbekistan is asking us a lot of questions. They're a Central Asian, old Soviet bloc country. And they're, they're saying, so show us this way that y'all do business compared to the way we do business. And so it's... It's interesting. Well, that is fascinating uh, to hear, and, and I think I would regard it as positive. Maybe we can sway them to become part uh, of our coalition as opposed to being under under the thumb of the Russians, honestly. Right. Just building blocks. Yeah. You know, just, just, just providing military building blocks. Uh, of course, it's much larger than that. It's got to be economic. It's got to yeah. be diplomatic and those right. things. But uh, that's yeah. one little piece we can do to help the relationship. That's good to hear. That's awesome. What about, um, I saw you speak the other day, and you talked about, some new assets that might be coming our way, right, uh, into the guard here in Mississippi. Oh, yeah. Well, um, so we're competing for assets all the time, okay, in the Pentagon. And uh, we've got, I'm not sure I want to say on 
radio. Whatever, you, but, but whatever look, you're comfortable with. We're, but we're uh, we're chasing some aviation assets, and we're chasing some uh, uh, assets for the 155 okay. that we think will uh, uh, make us more relevant. Not that we aren't relevant now, but uh, it just makes us more attractive to the Pentagon and the people who dial our number when they need us. Okay. Uh, but I will say this. So we are doing this. We are... Um, um, you know, the Mississippi National Guard has a great reputation nationally for our maintenance and our know-how and our our knowledge, especially at Camp Shelby, where we have a lot of maintainers. And because of that, um, because we're so good on tanks and track vehicles, uh, the Pentagon has selected us to um, issue tanks to the Tennessee National Guard. They've selected us to issue tanks to the North Carolina National Guard. Mm. And that's great payroll. It's great uh, revenue for the state when we do that. Uh, But they've also selected us to um, um, provide training for the Taiwanese down at Camp Shelby and uh, to show them how our equipment works so that when they go back home, they can maintain our equipment. And there will be a relationship there where we'll send some maintainers over there to help them out and train them uh, on their tanks. And so we're very, the Mississippi National Guard is very involved in current events going on around the world. Hmm, and Taiwan's one of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then also, of course, involved very much so in the local community and within the state, uh, most recently helping out with the water situation in the uh, city of Jackson. And, and you said something that caught my attention the other day, uh, General, which is you heard a lot of positive feedback uh, from the ranks uh, where they said, you know, this is what I signed up to do, that they yeah. enjoy seeing uh, the benefit of their service to their their fellow citizens within the state, yeah. and certainly that was in play here. You know, and uh, we've talked earlier. I mean, we've been talking this whole time about deployments and overseas and yeah. world events and those kind of things. And it really during the COVID response, I'd go around and talk to soldiers, and that's why I mentioned the other day and airmen who were out there working also. And I, a, a young lady, just put me on my heels. Uh, when I was talking to her, and she said, sir, you know, all these deployments are great, and I'll serve and go and deploy every time you ask me to do that, but this this community service is why I signed up to, to be in the Guard, helping my neighbors and friends and church and schools. So Makes total makes sense. Makes feel good. Makes it, feel good. It's got to be good to get that feedback, too, yeah, as it well, because it, it, it gives the purpose, and, and, and it kind of reaffirms why you did it why they did it. That's, That's what right. it's all about. Yeah. General, always good to see you, sir. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, yeah. of course, uh, for your service, for the service uh, of our veterans, for the men and women who serve in the Mississippi National Guard as well. I know we'll be talking to you soon. Happy Thank Veterans you, Day. Thank you. Yes, sir. Appreciate yeah. it. General Jansen Boyles, the Adjutant General of the Mississippi National Guard of the state of Mississippi has been our guest. We're going to step aside for a break right here. We got uh, Pamela Jr., the director of two museums, will join us, two Mississippi museums, pardon me, will join us at 1250. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. 
Coming at you live today, we have relocated the Element Well Studios down at two Mississippi museums. They've enjoyed the day with all the great uh, folks coming on to interview. Always enjoy interviewing the Adjutant General, uh, General Jansen Boyles. Uh, I got to fully disclose here, I used to play softball with the General. And that's been, I have to think about how many years that's been, about 30 years ago. So, Rhino, I just shared a photo uh, with Super Talk team here on location of the old softball team where the general and I are standing next to each other in the photo. And it's been about uh, 30 years, I think, when that photo was taken. We used to play softball out in Ridgeland. Uh, little did I know that he would rise to become the adjutant general of the great state of Mississippi. Very proud of him. I think he serves uh, very competently, very professionally. He has the respect of the ranks, certainly the respect of uh, me and many others in the state of Mississippi, and we very much appreciate his service and the service of all those in the Mississippi National Guard, uh, both on the Air Force and Army side. And, of course, we are incredibly grateful to all those who serve in active military and all the veterans who have served. And that's what this is really all about. So appreciate them, appreciate their service, and we are proud to be uh, uh, take a small part in uh, the celebration and the recognition of their service as we are here today at two Mississippi museums and tomorrow at uh, the Armed Forces Museum down at Camp Shelby. Looking forward to that uh, visit. Three remotes in a row. I've been a bit of a road dog this week, uh, Rhino. Thanks for holding down the studios at Super Talk there in Jackson. We'll be back uh, in that studio on Monday. Have never been a Trumpster, but he was the best we had in the last election, and I voted for him, but he needs to sit back and let someone who is more diplomatic but shares his values take charge. I hate Trump's ego. He needs to learn to say, I less and we more. That a message on the ceasefire text line. What, uh, Thomas Greenwood, what do Yunkin, Kemp, and DeSantis have in common? I don't know. Tell us. Nikki Haley for VP. Interesting. Marion Greenwood says, let Trump run again, then DeSantis. Hopefully that will be 12 years. And it's it's uh, just my thoughts on that that I share with Mary on the ceasefire tax line and certainly can talk about here that here on the airs. And I don't honestly believe Trump can win. I just don't. If he emerges as the nominee on the Republican ticket in 2024, I'm not confident that he can win. Now, no question there are a dozen factors or more that will figure into that. But as of today, lots of stuff could happen in the next two years. Who knows? And, of course, we don't know yet who might be his opponent. And you know that will play a big role as well in the outcome of a presidential election. But I I don't think, I'm not confident that he gives us the best chance to retake the White House. And I'm also concerned if he's on, if he's the headline of the ticket, that it might affect the down ticket, the down ballot races. And we might see a flip in the House back to the Democrats. And we will not have control of the Senate. Uh, thus, we really can't get a whole lot done. What we need to do is reverse and repeal and rescind much of 
the bad policy and legislation that has been, or certainly counter it, that has been passed and enacted during these first two Biden years, and, and therefore we need as much power as we can in the House, of course, and over in the Senate, and then in the White House to make that happen. The path to victory goes through the middle. Trump can't get the votes of the middle, says Thomas and Greenwood. The midterms were an example. Interesting uh, analysis there as well, uh, Thomas, and I think that might be the case. Kevin on the road says DeSantis and Trump will run and it will divide the Republicans. That means half of the Republicans won't show up to vote. That means Democrat wins presidential election. That's just my guess. That's certainly... A concern. I, I, I also point out again the concern that in the exit polls, the 18 to 29 year old demographic went 64 percent for Democrats. So something's missing there. I, I do believe that it, there there is some uh, some pervasive feeling in this country of that age group that the government exists. Uh, to provide some sort of financial benefit to them, uh, financial uh, assistance, uh, just financial, uh, the the goodness of the government, the the giant um, government asset (laughs) just needs to be transferred out into their hands. It's not so much socialism that I think that they support more more so it's transferism. And what I mean by that is they don't want so much the government to intrude in their lives and manage it. They just want the financial largesse of government in their pockets in the in the form of uh, student debt cancellation, which is mostly held by that age group, in the form of child tax credits and and uh, shifting more of the tax burden over to corporations and those individuals at the higher end of the at the income scale. You know, I've talked about it on the program to, when we when we refer to what sort of specific proposals could the Republicans make to address the uh, inflationary and economic issues that are confronting us. I suggested that one of the first things they should do is uh, extend the Trump tax cuts, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, make those permanent because the individual provisions of those are scheduled to expire in 2025. But you just didn't hear a lot about that. It's it's And the Democrats don't talk about it either. They know that these are about to expire in, in a short three years. They know that that's coming. And, and they're just laying low on it because they fully intend to let them expire, to allow them expire. And I don't think the Republicans did enough of uh, put a, a forth enough effort in their communication and their campaigning to explain to the electorate that if that happens, your taxes are going up. Your taxes are going up even to the 50-plus percent of households in this country that paid no income taxes. A lot of that is because, honestly, of the TCJA. And when those expire, they're going to be placed back on the tax rolls. This was, And this was a, um, a criticism I had for the Trump tax cuts. That it actually removed. It removed Americans. It removed households from the tax rolls because the standard deduction was doubled. And uh, a lot of folks just didn't have a tax liability uh, when the calculations were done. So that not not enough, I think, noise was made of that issue. And uh, maybe it will in 2024, 
but I think it could have been a factor to help the Republicans in 22. That same demographic doesn't even know where the government gets its money from on the ceasefire tax line. Well, you know, I think that is a lot of truth to that, but when you got government spending recklessly and generating uh, trillion and multi-trillion dollar deficits uh, without uh, with impunity, and without having to concern themselves, pardon me, on how to pay for it, well, that just makes sense that they think, well, that that money just drops out of the sky. It's helicopter money into the government uh, coffers. And we're now experiencing this period of modern monetary theory, which, in fact, uh, holds just that, that the government has an unlimited printing press, an unlimited supply of money. It doesn't have to concern itself from uh, where it will get its money. It just spends it, which is an objection I have even to Republicans supporting the CHIPS Act, Republicans supporting the Infrastructure Act. And, of course, they would tell you, well, the infrastructure's good. We have, we have broad agreement on that. We need more infrastructure. Well, I agree there need to be some infrastructure improvements, but, okay, where do we get the money from? Why do we just keep saying yes? When do we ever say no? And, of course, they said no to the Inflation Reduction Act, but that was more, honestly, on political grounds than, than, than uh, as a function of economic policy. And it just keeps going without, without any consequences. I think all the young people voting Democrat is because of all the free handouts, says Terry. Yeah, that's what we were saying, Terry, as well, that um, pledging to forgive student loans was a big factor in the exit polling that showed the 18- to 29-year-old demographic uh, opting in favor of the Democrats. And they know Republicans oppose that, and they want those student loans forgiven. It's just a, a big old dang mess, and it all once again comes down to the role of government. 67% of them still haven't paid their own phone bill, says Zach in Oxford. It is true that there are a lot in that uh, age group whose phone bills are still being picked up by their parents. That's absolutely true, or living with their parents. Remember in the 90s when bills failed over arguments over $50 of spending? Good times, says Thomas in Greenwood. Yeah, I remember the $887 billion um, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, a.k.a. Stimulus, first major piece of legislation passed under the Obama administration in, in uh, 29. I remember that as well. Think about how that's different than the $1.9 trillion um, American Rescue Plan and the $2.2 trillion CARES Act passed under Donald Trump, plus all the quantitative easing by the Fed, is about $7 trillion spent. Pamela Jr., director of two Mississippi museums, coming up next. You know what that means. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome 
Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi coming at you live from two Mississippi museums today. That in advance of Veterans Day coming up uh, tomorrow. We've got Pamela Jr., director of two Mississippi museums, now in the Element Well Studios right here at the museums. Pamela, thanks for coming on again. Oh, this is this has been fun all day, so thank you for having me. You bet. So we were talking in the last, uh, the last uh, time you and I just spoke about an hour ago. We're talking about uh, these beautiful facility and these great museums and the experience one can expect uh, when they uh, go through here. I got to ask you, where, where did the curators from? Who came up with the idea? Was this a collaborative effort by a lot of folks that just uh, mapped this out? We have some amazing folks that came in. You know, we our historians here are, I have to say, top rate. Mm-hmm. And for them to be able to go out and collect the history of Mississippi and get these companies from all over the United States to come in here, it was awesome. Yeah. Awesome work. Awesome work. From As I tell people, from me watching them put the shovels in the dirt and then coming aboard and watching these buildings come up, you have to see it. It was something. And then to bring in people who really understood and were passionate about telling the stories of Mississippi. It's been a wonderful, a wonderful ride here. And so uh, do families uh, contribute lots of the photos and the artifacts? How, how did that get connected up? Well, you know, we're connected with the Mississippi Archive. Yeah. Uh, in history, and the wonderful thing about that is that people are, are, are that that storehouse, that vessel is is getting these artifacts. And and if you go down in our basement and see our collections, it's just something to see. Mm-hmm. So this Mississippi Department of Archives and History has been here since 1902. So think about how long artifacts have been coming in. To, yeah, that's to, amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Exactly. Well, all right. Tell us again about the the plans you have on the boards to perhaps uh, expand the facility, add new exhibits. Well, you know, that's, uh, what we got going on? That's always people are coming in and talking about, especially civil rights. And then on the history side, you know, we have this, we have that. We have a committee that makes decisions on how things can be changed. Mm-hmm. You know, but the wonderful thing that I want to tell and say to you is yeah. that we have a 50-year anniversary coming up. Okay. We've been here since 2017, five years, this place. And so we have this big event that's happening the 9th and 10th and 11th of December. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. That is awesome. That's yeah. hard to believe. I'm, a, five I'm years. an old head here now. <laughs> For five nah. years. So, and, and and we're planning not only that, but just WK Kellogg Foundation is making sure they're sponsoring those three days. So we are free, free, free. Ninth, gotcha. tenth, and eleventh. Not only that, on the tenth, we're going to have food trucks outside. We're going to have music. This is going to be a day of activities. And then that Sunday, we have some events for children. So we're excited about this. Yeah. Uh, that sounds that sounds fantastic. It's it's just uh, breathtaking to think that it's been five years. Obviously. And, and when we opened, it was a very snowy, icy day. I remember that? And uh, we had a lot of visitors here, and, yep. and I can still see Mrs. Murley ever speaking. Not only her, but Governor William Winter. Yep. Oh my goodness, what a wonderful <clears throat> day! So we'll be doing a lot of reminiscing. Yeah, and uh, my good friend Judge Reuben Anderson yes. as well. Right? Yes, yes. I, I know he played a critical role. He in, did. In making this happen it was a lifelong dream yes and uh it was such uh so gratifying to see that dream materialize and realize for him and i know he he's he's uh, very humble about it but he he had a lot to do with it he did he's had a lot to do with a lot of things that have happened for the state of mississippi you're right so we honor him and we're very proud to know that he he's a he is a champion for the two mississippi museums no doubt about it excellent 
Uh, and if someone wants to find out about bringing a group in and scheduling a group uh, tour of the museums, how do they do that, Pam? Well, we have our group tours coordinator. They call the front desk, which is our 601-576-6800 number, and they'll connect her with her. You tell us what you want. We'll even feed you. Okay. With, with, with yeah, our got a cafe here? Yes, yeah. and we have a cafe yeah. here. But for students that come in, if, they're under the, if the school is under Title 20 program, then the children are fed free. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. so that's wonderful. We we want children to come from Biloxi. We want yeah. children to come from every area, every area of the state of Mississippi. As our former governor, William Winter, who's passed on, would say, mm-hmm. is that these are the largest classrooms for the state of Mississippi. Great way to describe it. There's, there's also a fantastic meeting room. I've been to several meetings uh, uh, here at the facilities. Oh, yes. Uh, that are sandwiched in between uh, the two museums. And, in fact, attend a congressional debate here, as yes. I recall. I'm sure you did. Uh, All type of meetings are yeah. here. We have a community room. We have our Bernini room. And we have our auditorium. So it's just, and then this, where you are now, yeah. a hall of history. It's awesome. Yes. Yeah. Pamela, thanks so much uh, for what you do here at the two museums. And thanks for having uh, Middays and Super Talk on, Thank you on for, site. Thank Appreciate you for it. having me. Thank, thank you. you. Yes. Pamela Jr., director of two Mississippi museums, has been our guest here on Middays. Folks, we're out of time here today, and we're going to be down, of course, at Camp Shelby at the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum tomorrow. We hope you'll tune in for that. Until then, stay safe, and God bless everyone. Mississippi Media Production.